The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. It's from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. And I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and director with Equity Economics. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about the new development policy, how it should look, what it should entail. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you, the listener. We're casting a wide lens on the age, development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from all across the sector and beyond. Now, a quick note on terminology. This is a conversation first and foremost, and sometimes we'll use the words policy and process interchangeably, and sometimes we'll get the accepted terminology wrong altogether. Please bear with us. It's all in the spirit of a free-flowing exchange of ideas. The Pacific is our most important region for development partnerships without question, something that the new government has made very clear with their recent travel and statements about listening to the Pacific. And the complexities playing out in PNG are some of the most pertinent in the world. It's a vibrant and beautiful nation, and most people listening to this podcast would have heard about the recent UN aerial mapping that's led to a shift in the estimates of the population. There's a lot of questions at play here. PNG is, of course, one of Australia's closest neighbours and receives one of the largest portions of development assistance. It's set in 2022 to 2023 on the bilateral program to receive $479.2 million, or $602 million Australian in ODA total. The country is grappling with several of the problems that we see playing out globally, the problems that international development is trying to resolve. We've got issues of governance, COVID, education and literacy, violence against women, corruption, and really ultimately questions of service delivery from a government to its citizens. Australia has a long history and one that we've not always gotten right. I'm very pleased today to introduce Mahalopa Lavelle, who I'm going to refer to as Maho, who is a lecturer in economics at the University of Papua New Guinea. He's currently undergoing a fellowship as the FDC Pacific Fellow with the Lowy Institute. Maho, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. I've just mentioned a whole lot of challenges that we see being experienced globally, particularly at the moment, that are also present in PNG. But there's so much more to the country than that. I want to talk, first of all, up front about some of the country's strengths, what PNG has to offer politically, economically, socially, and culturally. It's such a rich country. Can we start there? Tell us about what you're thinking. Yeah, sure. Um, PNG has a lot of strengths. I think um, we're very, again, like everyone who knows Papua New Guinea, very diverse, um, culturally diverse, um, geographically, or at least um, topographically. Um, and the resilience of the people, I think, is um, should be mentioned. Um, they face a lot of challenges, particularly because we've got 
96 districts, but 91 of them are rural. And a lot of them face a lot of difficulties, but their resilience, their ability to smile through their challenges um, and make a living. Um, they have a lot of families that they look after. And um, even though a lot of the educational health outcomes are pretty poor, um, Papua New Guineans continue to survive through all of these challenges. And, and they, they're very hospitable. They're very kind. They're very loving, right? despite a lot of their challenges. So I think, yeah, I think we bring a lot of values and a lot of rich diversity to the table in terms of globally. Mm. And Maho, when we last spoke on this podcast, it was 2020 and COVID-19 was still fairly new to all of us, but P&G was being hit really hard. And we spoke about some of the early economic impacts of COVID-19 that you were observing. But since we spoke, the situation, of course, became a lot more dire with several more waves of COVID, low vaccination rates and the associated health and economic impacts of that. Do you see things improving at the moment? PNG has largely uh, come out of it unscathed. I think we had a low death toll relative to the, uh, the cases um, that we, at least testing was low. Uh, but there was a lot of high cases. There was a, a low death toll. Um, vaccination rates are still pretty low. I think it's still 6% of the population. Um, but again, I think a lot of the um, COVID restrictions were um, abandoned earlier on. But economically, we've come out. Um, trade has picked up. Formal employment hasn't recovered. So I think from the last conservative estimate, there was about 10,000 jobs that were lost. Um, we haven't seen that, at least with the Bank of PNG stats that came out. I think there's a six-month lag. Um, six months ago, we haven't seen the recovery of that. Um, private sector lending hasn't improved as much, but government revenue has increased a lot uh, with the Ukraine-Russian war. Um, from last year with high um, petroleum prices, there was a lot of government revenue that came in. Um, government spending as a result has gone up. So there's a lot of funding. Um, I think it was 8 million kina allocated per MP to the, um, both provinces and districts that went up to 10 million kina last year. And a lot of funding went into health and education as a result of the supplementary budget last year as well. Uh, and so 2022 was, I think the GDP growth, if I remember correctly, was about 4% from a negative growth rate um, in 2019. And I think it was 1% growth rate in 2020, uh, 2021. So yeah, we've picked up economically pretty well. Um, the elections were pretty poor um, as a result of administration and the results weren't as credible. Um, but we've seen political stability after that, and Morab has come back. And the government coalition is large in parliament. Pango Party is a lot of the um, ministries as part of the governing coalition. So we see political stability, particularly this year going forward. And again, the projections from government are pretty strong revenue-wise. So, yeah, we've, we've recovered very well. Maho, as expected, uh, you've covered a lot of ground there as someone who's commentating on PNG and its its progress recently. A lot of that was quite interesting to me. So we're seeing a decrease in private sector lending. We're seeing government revenue increasing because of Ukraine. And you were just saying 4% GDP growth and looking at projections of that continuing, if not growing. So I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily expect that. We all were very aware of the elections. I'm thinking now Australia has a new development policy that's coming out that you would be well aware of, right? 
And so the new government, Penny Wong and Pat Conroy, are leading this initiative where Australia is planning its engagement in different countries, including in the Pacific predominantly and PNG. So we have a significant development program there. How do you think some of those patterns you're seeing that you just mentioned play out with what we should be doing next in the future? What does this mean? Well, I, I could speak on the elections just because I've written a lot about it. Um, I think Australia had, with its um, election assistance program, about $30 million Australian dollars over five years. Um, mm-hmm. And that was only six years, $5 million per year. Um, and we saw that um, Australia depended a lot on, um, for example, print. So the printing of ballot papers and logistical support was the biggest um, part of that assistance. Um, now, the ballot papers, 12 million that were printed, was on the PNG Electoral Commission's um, uh, 12 million estimate of what the role would look like. But then we've been writing a lot about how faulty the electoral role was. And I think... Um, if Australia wants to improve on its assistance and at least improve uh, electoral outcomes in 2027, I think the first thing that it should um, particularly focus on would be getting the electoral role um, improved and stepping in pretty early on in the process, right? So the electoral role, particularly for the uh, for this last year's election, was done a year before, and because there was uh, it was very poorly administered, it was actually completed um, two weeks before the issue of writs, which was very very late, and was um, very little time for observers, and within the government itself, um, different agencies to actually vet the role, and so. We'd want development partners to actually step in um, mid-electoral cycle or particularly earlier periods of the electoral cycle to actually start the process, improve the electoral role. The electoral role is the first step into improving um, administration um, of the elections. Um, the other thing that uh, would be really good for Australia to at least assist with is the census next year. So the um, 2024 census would be um, the first census in at least 20 years um, to collect actually credible population data. Um, the 2011 census was um, widely regarded as a failed census. Um, a lot of observers pointed to there being an undercount. Um, some observers pointed to an undercount as high as about 20%. Um, and so the census is pretty good. Um, the PNG government has allocated 50 million kina this year, which is pretty low um, given in 2011, um, 150 million kina um, from the PNG government was um, allocated to prepare and then conduct the census. I know the census is next year and there will obviously be another allocation, but given the problems with the 2011 census, we don't want that repeated um, and there'd be uh, deficient population data again after uh, 13 years. So the census is a big thing. Um, the census will be then used to assess the um, validity of the electoral role. So that's important for election outcomes. And in regards to the census, I think the demographic and health survey of 2016 to 2018 is a really good model for Australia to build on. Although in the demographic and health survey, the DHS, um, that was um, largely sponsored and um, it was conducted largely by the USAID. And so it was largely nationally representative. It was the success from the National Statistics Office, which is PNG government's agency. So I guess um, focusing on that, replicating the DHS model, having more funding and um, expertise assisting the NSO and the PNG government would be really good to um, 
to focus on the census. And then other um, development goals that Australia and PNG share. I think, uh, and, and more broadly, um, I think the Marape government has a sort of larger appetite for reform. And we, as an economist, I see that largely because uh, Marape, uh, in uh, differentiating from his predecessor, O'Neill, has moved largely to concessional and foreign loans with low interest, particularly because of COVID-19, because um, Marape's government was fiscally constrained to actually continue the commercial borrowing. So with those concessional loans, um, long story short, a lot of the fiscal reforms that were um, pushed in with those loans from the ADB, from the IMF, um, had a lot of reforms that were realized. I mean, you see the ICAC coming on board, you see um, the Whistleblowers Act in 2020, um, you see the Central Bank Review um, that's into its phase two, um, you see, uh, what else, the fiscal reforms, which IMF uh, really noted in its um, its Article 4 a report for last year was satisfied with the fiscal reforms. And so I guess if Australia can push for a lot of those reforms through its concession loans, through a lot of its foreign aid as conditions for, so if he can push a lot of those reforms through his um, budget support and through other um, uh, assistance, that would be really good. Great. So for those listening, one PNG Kina is about 40 cents to the Australian dollar. Maho, what I'm hearing there, and I know that it's actually Rachel's dying to ask you a question, but I'm hearing democratic governance, particularly early and robust electoral programs, revisiting the census, that would fit for me also in democratic governance. And then you're talking a lot about public financial management through whistleblowers, central bank reforms, some of the conditions for the loans, like that's really PFM. So I'm hearing that those are loud and clear, the two sectors that you think we need to be focusing on for the development partnership. Do you think there's appetite? You mentioned the Marape government has a larger appetite for reform. Is there appetite for those two sectors being the predominant part of the partnership, do you think? Is there willingness? Yes, there is. Um, So the IMF coming in had a lot of... um, fiscal reforms again. So just at the high level, lowering the um, civil service wage bill, lowering the um, interest cost as a share of expenditure, and then improving um, tax compliance, improving tax collection as well within the Internal Revenue Commission, and then improving um, subnational government financing. Although PNG has suffered a lot just because um, with the the ransomware attack in 2020, that um, really crippled um, the IFMS system for um, subnational accounting, subnational finance arrangements, and then it switched to the manual system. So I know DFAT has been working a lot closely with subnational governments to actually increase financing, and that could be um, a way to at least increase assistance in that area and then improve governance around um, subnational government financing. The Whistleblowers Act and ICAC is pretty good. I think um, Australia has scope for assisting PNG getting its sovereign wealth fund up as well. Um, it's been legislated in 2014. It hasn't been operational. There is an interim trust account, um, which is administered under the Prime Minister's Department right now, which raises a lot of questions to, towards governance. Um, and there was a 5.6 billion Kina um, deposit, but the legislation states that it should be deposits from 
um, uh, resource assets. And this was a deposit from non-resource asset holding companies. So again, pushing for more deposits um, in good years from um, resource revenues would be really good and getting the uh, SWF operational. Mm. There's a million things to unpack there. I really want to talk about civil society, but first, I think we need to talk about this population point because it's it's quite critical to to everything really in terms of how we prioritize development priorities in PNG. So for those that aren't aware, PNG was in the headlines recently um, because it was reported that the estimated population was in fact double what was previously estimated. Now, as you say, Maho, the 2011 census was regarded to be a failed census. There haven't been many other opportunities to to calculate the population. And so the number that we had previously was, was actually based upon satellite imagery. Now the estimate is around 20 million. Is that correct? So uh, the population estimate that came out was 17 million. Um, it was based on, uh, so it was the UN's um, population. It's UNFPA. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, right? Um, so Australia was the, I think, was the principal that funded UNFPA um, with the assistance of UN, the University of Southampton to do the study. Um, PNG government was the client, received the estimate, was um, used satellite imaging. We don't have the report, um, and so we can't give an informed critical comment on uh, the methodology used. But satellite imaging in a country like Papua New Guinea raises a lot of questions just because you can't really count households with roofing iron or households or at least households with nightlights so buildings with nightlights um, and so 17 million is based uh, comparing 17 million to government's estimates is really um, like that that's almost you could say it's far-fetched just because government's estimates are 9.4 million at the moment and with the conservative estimates that we have and the best estimates available it places PNG's population between at least in 2022 between 9.4 and about 11 million and um, that's based on uh, the 2011 census adjusted for the undercount that was a study done by the Natural Research Institute. Um, ANU also came out with a study that placed um, the population at around 10 million for um, 2022 as well. So, yeah, 17 million is almost double government's official estimates. And it would really have, uh, so, so it has a lot of implications, right? If it's 17 million people, that um, reduces. Um, GDP per capita drastically, right? So it's about 6,600 kina, at least in 2020, GDP per capita, and non-resource GDP per capita, which is our best um, available estimate given we don't have gross national income. And non-resource GDP per capita is about 4,000, so that would fall drastically, put us in like a um, low-income country. Um, also, you've got to think about doctors to doctors per capita, police per capita. It's like, like one policeman to about 1,145 people, at least in 2021. And then with a population of 17 million, that just falls, right? Doctors, there's about 500 doctors to about 9.4 million people. That's about, I don't know, one doctor to about 2,000 people or something. But that would fall as well. And then again, the vaccination rates as well, if it was 6% of the population, fall to about 4%. So I guess that that estimate is is very um, 
it goes to the urgency that we need a census, but it really calls into question. Again, we have to really look at the methodology, but then, yeah, a lot of those estimates become even worse. It's really shocking and, and really concerning because, as you say, the doctor-to-patient ratio was already extremely concerning, as it is for teachers and 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 a number of other critical services and critical infrastructure. So I I agree with the urgency of the census. I think what that raises for me though is the role of civil society. So PNG has a growing civil society presence, um, and a lot of Australia's focus in the past, particularly around elections, has been supporting female candidates and and their civil society groups um, to to progress in elections with, without much luck, right? Correct me if I'm wrong here, but there hasn't, well, there hasn't been much luck at all in getting female candidates elected despite much investment from international donors. Um, but the civil society presence around elections um, is a really interesting one to observe. So I, I'm interested in your perspective on what the state of civil society is in PNG. What are they calling for? Uh, how does it compare to others in the Pacific? We often talk about Vanuatu having a really strong civil society presence. Um, how does PNG compare? So yeah, again, the elections. Uh, there's a lot of civil society involvement. I think Transparency International with um, Australian Electoral Assistance had a really good program for civic awareness. They went out to all of the provinces. I don't think they visited all the districts, but um, yeah, the civic awareness on the elections, their constitutional rights, um, a lot of that we saw playing in. Um, and just to your point about there not being a lot of luck, um, I don't know how you can measure luck. Uh, two women elected from the parliament previously that had zero women was pretty good. Um, it, it goes back to the historic average of about two or three women elected per um, election. So I guess we're moving in the right direction for women participation. I think more needs to be done. I think Australia, um, the PNG parliament has already signaled that uh, reserved seats is not politically palatable. Um, and so you could focus on the one step below that would be introducing quotas for parties because we see that even though there's a lot of independents that run in elections a lot of the um, election outcomes have uh, it's a bias towards parties so parties consist of about 80 percent of all the winners and so if parties can introduce at least starting with and as a five percent quota in legislation um, Australia can help PNG push for an increase to about 20% or even 50% if that was possible, right? Then you could increase the um, number of women being elected. But again, um, this election was really good for women participation. And Rafina Peter and Cassie Sawang are pretty significant in um, PNG government as well in the governing coalition. They have a voice they're listened to by the prime minister. And um, they don't have ministries, but they're pretty influential. So... Um, increasing their um, influence within the governing coalition and then preparing for the next election. The, um, Australia is well poised to do that, I think, this time. Mm, I agree. It's an interesting next chapter. It's a good time. So it sounds from what you're saying, you've just covered a wealth of material there. 
but essentially what a new development policy might mean with Australia and PNG really ultimately comes back to the census almost as a building block because that then shapes a lot of what we could do, what we understand the landscape to be going forward. So that's a starting point along with the early and robust electoral engagement that you were just flagging there. Those are the two starting points and it flows from there. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, I'd like to also see some work done on improving private sector employment. Well, private and public sector employment, but primarily private sector employment. So again, I go back to Bank of PNG's tracking of private sector employment, and we see a high point in 2013. Um, and so again, PNG's private sector is about 300,000 um, formal sector workers, and PNG's labor force is about four to five million. So that's four to five million people aged between 15, 15 years and 60 that can and are able to work. Um, very few are formerly sec sector employed, and then it's fallen since 2013. So in 2021, it was about um, 13% below the 2013 level, and it's decreased since, right? And not just because of COVID, but it was a trend in the last um, seven years as well. So having more strong business-to-business -business, um, partnerships, um, more strong push towards employment, uh, probably leveraging on the uh, seasonal worker program in Australia. Um, PNG again has the largest population closest to Australia. I think visa restrictions are pretty tough on Papua New Guineans. And then we've got uh, out of eight countries, we're the seventh uh, in number of workers entering Australia. And then it's all low-skilled workers as well. So Yeah. We were speaking to Minister Conroy, Pat Conroy, also on this podcast, and he was talking about his plans for the Pacific Labor Mobility Work, but also for the new development finance policy that they've got a review underway. And they're looking at, he was speaking to impact investing and engaging with the private sector there. And he didn't speak about PNG explicitly, but I actually think there's a fair amount of work that could be done there. So I hope that you're engaging in that space too. That's coming out alongside the other strategy we hope in May of this year. Let's see. Yeah, I guess, yeah, but, but yeah, just strengthening private sector employment would be uh, an avenue for Australia. Yeah, huge opportunity, right? Lots of potential. Maha, I'm going to ask you now to, we're going to zoom out a little bit from PNG, and I'm going to ask you about the Pacific Island Forum. So what are your thoughts on the PIF, particularly after this split happened? And what do you think about the Blue Pacific? Does it have legs? It does. Um, uh, the Blue Pacific, I think, Leveraging on, um, again, climate change, climate sustainability, and then on its um, large tuna resources. Um, uh, unlike Papua New Guinea, which has a lot more land compared to ocean, a lot of these islands have a lot more ocean. Um, strengthening their regulatory mechanisms around um, preventing illegal fishing, um, and then getting a lot more revenue through licensing fees and through um, Again, developing canning facilities, particularly in the larger island states, would be pretty good going forward. And getting an economic return on the large marine resources would be a big step forward in the right direction. Yeah. It's an exciting direction um, to see PNG and the Pacific in general going in. And I think the Pacific Island Forum has proven to be an interesting diplomatic playing ground for Australia, shall we say? And I think Australia's role in the forum has, has been subject to much debate. What's your perspective on that? 
I think Australia and New Zealand are accepted in the Pacific Islands Forum as um, equal partners, but I think leadership should should revolve around all the Pacific Island states without influence from Australia and New Zealand. And I think they should resolve. Uh, I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, strife, I'd say, um, with the last um, election of the leader. And I think I think that whole traditional um, moving from one uh, sort of region to the other. So I think it was Melanesia first that it went to Polynesia. It was Polynesian leader first, then to Melanesia, then to Micronesia. And I think Micronesia was left out of this um, round of yeah, being elected. So I guess allowing them to resolve their differences without any undue influence would be really good. Mm, I think that's right. And 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 we certainly hope that that that's the direction Australia's role can continue to go in. But I think what this speaks to for me is Australia's role in the Pacific Islands Forum is is a very is an example of track one diplomacy, as we call it. So government to government linkages. Whereas a really interesting space is track two diplomacy, as it's called, or people to people linkages or civil society linkages. And of course, Maho, we met when we were participating in the Lowy Institute's Australia PNG Emerging Leaders Dialogue, which, among many things, let us spend a fabulous few days in East CPEC, which I've been desperate to return to ever since. Um, but it was a great example of facilitating dialogue between um, emerging leaders or civil society leaders or not non-government connections, which is really essential to diplomacy. But it's sort of an area that I think Australia has struggled with somewhat with the Pacific. There is a lot of legacy in PNG, and I would say one in three Australians have an interesting historical connection to PNG. Um, I'm always surprised by how many people do have people-to-people linkages with PNG. But how can we foster more of that, both with PNG and the Pacific, as a really essential form of diplomatic ties? Well, I think at the very least, you could start with increasing um, tourist opportunities from Australia and um, just engaging informally because I think those were, are where the strengths are built really well. Um, so informal um, mechanisms and then got a lot of NGOs in Australia, particularly in PNG and I know in the Solomons and Vanuatu, a lot of um, helping out of uh, so NGOs, helping out in schools, NGOs helping out in um, clinics and in rural areas, um, helping with other um, sort of bottom-up um, development goals that those communities have. And so uh, having those small connections, first of all, builds up to larger, or once they reach scale, then they can be leveraged on um, government to government. So I guess... Um, Increasing those formal links is, I think, important. And again, business to business as well, um, particularly small businesses as well. Engaging with a lot of small businesses or medium-sized businesses in Australia would be really good to actually strengthen a lot of those development outcomes. I know businesses may not be um, a very uh, particularly sort of palatable light in development discussions, but I think businesses are pretty important just because um, you see the informal economy very large in a lot of these Pacific Island states, right? And so strengthening small businesses is really good. Um, there's a lot of artisan and a lot of um, sort of uh, sort of artwork that a lot of these um, smallholder um, companies and sort of um, sort of people have, right? And so 
um, increasing the avenues with which they can export those products to Australia and building those informal or at least formal but small business-to-business linkages would be really good. Absolutely. And I think engaging the private sector is one of the big themes of the year. That's why the Development Finance Review alongside the Development Policy I I hope we see that. And it just seems like such a natural fit. I think it's about making sure that the risk appetite and the way of engaging is there and people understanding how best to engage with the private sector in a flexible way. So making sure that the the systems and processes are there to match the ambition for the programs and what people really need. And that's all part of the listening that we're all talking about. Maho, I was just thinking through what you were saying about education, and I was matching it with the need for a census, which will obviously help in this situation. But I understand enrolment rates have really stagnated, and the retention rates are an issue too. There's some things I'm hearing about the fact that one in three children might not be in school or will be absent on any given day, and one in four teachers might not be in the classrooms. I'm not sure of those stats or how formal they are. But that to me, with a burgeoning population that is much larger than we think it is, although we need to wait for a census. That seems to me to be one of the most critical issues for the region going forward that we need to address. I keep thinking of human security. I keep thinking of lifetimes ahead of this and intergenerational poverty. Can you speak to that a little bit? I know you're an economist and I'm taking you into more of the social side, but please, how do you think this plays out? That's really important. Um, human capital is really important, particularly in Papua New Guinea and then again across the Pacific Island states. Um, I think there was a, I can't remember what the study was, but it said the average education level for Papua New Guinea was a grade six level. So that's really low. And then you match that with literacy rates as well. I think in the last that I've seen was about 55% for men and about 50% for women. So it's still very high. So this is adult literacy rates. And then we've got a huge youth bulge. I think the Demographic and Health Survey uh, found that about 45% of the population was below the age of 15. Um, so again, huge youth bulge, median age of about 22. And then you've got, um, uh, like you said, educational outcomes pretty low. Um, we've got, uh, when you, when you um, complete Year eight, there's a cutoff with um, examination. And then there's a lot of dropouts after year eight to high school. And then you get to year 12, there's another cutoff. And then you've got only about, uh, for about 17,000 year 12s, as I remember in 2020, there's about only 5,000 tertiaries, so colleges, universities, and vocational centers open to actually absorb that. And so you had a lot of um, after year 12, uh, about... 12,000 students that were without um, future, basically. And then they added to that whole, um, they basically joined the informal economy because, again, as I said, the formal sector employment was pretty um, was pretty narrow to absorb that. So you've got a huge youth bulge and then education not filling that and then employment not absorbing all those who actually enter the education system as well. So a lot of those areas, uh, both at the education level, the high school education, that the tertiary level should be focused on, both with the PNG government and Australia as well. Mm. We talk a lot about the youth bulge um, as, well, a challenge, which it is. It is a challenge for development, but it's also an exciting opportunity, of course, because 
for many reasons, but one being the entrepreneurialism that we're seeing from young people throughout the region. And I've had a few interesting conversations recently on the Solomon Islands specifically in the really burgeoning um, entrepreneurial ecosystem there and some of the great ideas and businesses that that young people are creating, which isn't dissimilar to the, the really vibrant entrepreneurial ecosystem we have here in Australia. So I guess that's the last point I'd like to push with you, Maho, is, is how, how can we see this youth bulge as an opportunity and what do you think Australia's role is in supporting young people? Australia can support. I think job matching is a really good way that Australia can support. So um, having vocational centres that actually uh, train um, people who drop out in the year eight level, the year 12 level, matching them with skills that um, larger companies are looking for. And soft skills and trade skills are pretty important in that area. And then leveraging off that for the new resource projects that are coming on board. So we saw in 2013 that the PNG LNG project um, had a very large increase in um, employment. And that was largely for Engineers, not so much, but drillers um, and other trade um, skills as well were employed as, to a large extent. And we have the uh, Papua LNG coming on board in 2027. I think the Pyongyang follows that in about two years after that. And so that's a really good opportunity for getting a lot more younger Papua New Guineans involved. But having a vocational center that can upskill them before those uh, resource projects come on board and absorbing a lot of those um, high school students that actually drop out of the system and a lot of other low-skilled workers would be really good. Yeah, Maho, I agree. I think there's a lot of discussion about PNG's reliance on extractive resources, and I keep thinking of the governance and, and the country's future. What do you think, particularly with respect to climate change? And I'm aware that that's a PhD question, so <laughs> keeping it brief as best you can, what do you think? I'd say, well, if I'm talking about the resource sector, we've got liquefied natural gas, which is pretty clean eh, compared to, I guess, oil, which is very small. Um, And then gold and copper, which is uh, less in value. Um, Liquefied natural gas is about 88% of exports, and it goes primarily to to Japan and a lot to China as well. So I guess um, in that sense, we're we're adding to a lot of them that push away from crude oil. So that's pretty good. Um, we're, I think PNG's increased its round log export tax for about, it was about 30, it was 39% in 2021. I think it's 59%. And then in the recent budget, it was increased by about 20%. So if I got my calculations correct, that's about two, around 65% right now. So that's, um, it's round log export taxes that'll decrease um, logging as well. Um, now the, the position for the PNG government is to increase timber. So that's downstream processing. So it's not climate change per se, but it it's aligning with, um, I guess, the global interest in protecting climate change. So I guess pushing PNG government to limit its um, round log Uh, round log exports, it's round log industry, and then um, protecting a lot of our rainforests and uh, probably pushing them to create more heritage sites. A lot of those um, rainforest areas would be pretty good. Yeah, I wonder if the Murape government has plans for that, actually. I think that'll be really interesting. Um, And all the more reason to pair that with important PFM reforms to protect that increase of government revenue, as we see over the next couple of years too, right? 
Maho, one of the growing conversations being had right now in the international development space is around decolonization. And there's this tricky balance when it comes to the Australia PNG dynamic. Our colonial history is a contributor towards our relationship there and the people to people ties that we have. But what's the feeling in PNG towards Australia's ongoing role in relationship? Do you get a sense of that? Or, I mean, it must be hard because you're over here in Australia at the moment, but I'm really interested if you've given this some thought. So I was lucky to be involved in a study that surveyed PNG perceptions on Australian aid. Uh, I think it was um, Western Sydney University, the Whitlam Institute. Um, they had, I think it was 500 respondents. Uh, it was broken up by rural and then there was an internet survey as well. Um, but basically their findings was um, PNG on the whole supports Australian aid, um, supports Australian assistance, um, looks to have... Uh, wants to see more Australian assistance, but doesn't want to see Australia competing with China in a lot of um, China's particularly strong areas. So uh, a lot of those perspectives were respecting China's um, push towards infrastructure, having Australia focus on its traditional sectors like education and health, um, pushing for more relaxing of the visa restrictions. Um, there was a lot of talk about boomerang aid, which are not, um, well, I guess, in that sense, was um, having a lot more uh, Papua New Guinean companies um, compete for Australian contracts yes. when it came to DFAT contracts as well, and a lot of a lot more informal um, connections as well. So building more tourism, building more friendships across uh, yeah across Papua New Guinea and Australian relationships. So generally a warm attitude towards the relationship, with some important changes that could be made to enhance that equality on both sides. Yes, I guess, yeah. And building on what Australia has done, um, Australia has done a lot already, and we're very grateful for that. And our shared history has us very close to Australia, and is Australia is still PNG's first partner of choice. But I guess um, building more informal and more friendships, having Australia understand PNG better, right? I mean, um, I think PNG's history, if you talk to the average Australian, doesn't know a lot about um, PNG's um, shared history with Australia. So that'd be really good to push more um, PNG sort of knowledge in the Australian sort of psyche or at least Australian education curriculum. Absolutely. A bit more of a working knowledge across the board. Maho, um, I think Australia is very grateful as well for its relationship with PNG, I just want to say. And I think Loe is incredibly lucky to have you. Thank you so much for your time today. We've been Jessica McKenzie and Rachel Mason-Nunn on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development for future needs. Thanks again. Bye for now. <laughs>